We're continuing in our series from the book of Acts on the Holy Spirit, and I invite you to open your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. While you're turning there, I want to give you some of the events leading up to this dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus has been raised from the dead after being in the tomb, and he is with the disciples for 40 days on earth. Now, we have a little bit of detail from the Gospels in regards to some of the dialogue that took place, but it's only a small portion of what I believe actually took place. It's over a month that Jesus is with the disciples. He's teaching them. They're asking questions. This is a new experience for them. And Jesus is about to go to heaven and leave the church to these men. And notice the dialogue that takes place in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The NASB gets the tense most specifically accurate in terms of the original language. It says that they kept on asking him. In other words, this was not just once, but multiple times. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom of God now? And they had this idea that was prominent in that time, a theology that Jesus would come or Messiah would come and drive out the Romans. That Messiah's mission was to reestablish Israel's national sovereignty. And yet Jesus had told them over and over and over again, my kingdom is not of this world. And look at the language in the verse here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. You can pull it out in your study guide or pull out your study guide, and you can follow along in our presentation here this morning, our study on the Holy Spirit. But notice what they say. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, this is right before Jesus is about to go to heaven, and the disciples still do not get it. This is remarkable. I mean, it's not remarkable that they don't get it, but the timeline of where they're at. This is after the resurrection, after 40 days, and they still have a huge theological misunderstanding, or can I say it, a theological error. A huge theological error, and Jesus is about to leave the church to these guys and they still don't get it and you can imagine that there could be a temptation to just be a little frustrated right i mean i would be of course jesus is not but i would be it's kind of like your mom that tells you over and over and over again and you still don't put your socks away or make your bed. You know, you just don't get it. It's not registering. And this indicates that there are some theological pet ideas 
that we all can have. Isn't that right? Worldviews, an ideology, a theology that is our pet idea. Are you following me? That is cherished and nurtured and held so close to the heart that it doesn't matter who tells us or how many Bible texts we see or even if God in the flesh tells us over and over and over and over again. It's just not registering. And that's what's happening with the disciples. And here Jesus is after 40 days after the resurrection or 40 years after the resurrection, in his glorified body, and he's telling them and illuminating, he's like, I'm about to go now. And while he's about to go, they come to him and say repeatedly, are you going to do it now? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to now drive out the Romans and reestablish Israel? And you can just imagine, if it wasn't me, I'd just be like, I give up. I, I mean, what's the matter with you? Like... I'm about to leave, and like, what's, what's wrong? I'm glad Jesus is patient. Amen? Even with our theological cherished ideas that couldn't be further from the truth. Amen? Look at the mercy of God in this dialogue. You see no scolding, no, what's your problem? Like, is there something you don't understand Aramaic? <laughs> you know, do I need to put it in Greek for you? Or I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's wrong here? I mean, you just don't know, know speak English. I mean, I just don't understand. Like, how many times do I have to do this? And they come, and the Greek indicates they kept on asking, are you going to do it now? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to reestablish the... The, the notion or, or the national sovereignty of Israel right now, it was so close to their personal identity, their national identity. And look at the response of Jesus. Look at the response of Jesus in the next text. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, he is so patient with them. Here it is. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. Notice, he doesn't even correct their theological misunderstanding. I mean, that's pretty startling, isn't it? Huge theological error, and they keep on asking. He doesn't correct it. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. There's a lot in there, but what you can derive from the dialogue is that Jesus is implying that the thing that they need the most, that will by implication help to open their eyes, is what? The Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't get frustrated. He, he doesn't correct their theological misunderstanding, although he's tried repeatedly, and he's about to leave, and he is comfortable leaving the disciples who have a huge theological misunderstanding about the mission of the Messiah which is why Jesus came. And he's comfortable leaving 
and having the Holy Spirit illuminate their minds. In other words, the starting point and the foundation of theological understanding, the ground of it, is not an intellectual problem. It is a spiritual problem. I'm not implying that the disciples had a spiritual issue, but what it does bring out is that the Holy Spirit is the ground from which illumination and revelation happen. That we can't even begin to talk about theology, which is what Jesus was implying, unless you have the Holy Spirit. Fascinating concept. Now, look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit when he was on the earth prior to his ascension. John chapter 14, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will do what? Will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is the divine teacher. John chapter 16, verse 13, in your study guide. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit, in summary, is the divine teacher, he is the guide, and he will guide us into truth. Now, this begs the question for me, look, why do I need help? Right? Why do I need divine assistance? I mean, what's wrong with me anyway? I mean, I want to know the truth. Why do I need the Holy Spirit to guide me into truth. And here's an illustrative story that demonstrates for us why we need help in being guided into truth. It's from John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. You know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus raises him to life. And here we have the reaction of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees um, today are considered to be, uh, in other words, if you called me a Pharisee, I would be offended. It's a pejorative term today. But back then, it was a compliment. These were the religious leaders, the ones that had been entrusted with the oracles of God. And notice the reaction of the religious leaders. Here, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and everyone that he interacts with after his death is like, wow, amazing, Jesus must be the Messiah. This is a living testimony, evidence, truth, as it were, in the flesh that is walking around Bethany and Judea, and people are just astounded that this man that has been declared dead and is dead for four days has been raised from the dead in broad daylight. And look at the response of the Pharisees. John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see who? Lazarus. So the news went out, and people are like, I got to see him, whom he had raised from the dead. I want to talk to him. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to what? To death also, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And I I summarize it in this way. It is not the availability of truth, it is the hypocrisy of the search. 
This is the issue that we have naturally as human beings, not just the Pharisees, but human beings naturally. We say, hey, show me the truth. I want to know the truth. Please show me the truth. And then when the truth is revealed, we're like, oh, no, I don't want the truth anymore, and we want to do away with it. This was a truth that was not in accordance with their worldview. So rather than going into and investigating the truth, what do they want to do? They want to kill the person. That is leading them in a different direction. It's the hypocrisy of the search. This is the human condition that we deal with. We say, oh, I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. And then when the truth is revealed, we're like, oh, no, thank you. Didn't want to know anyway. And we deal with this. I remember I bought a sandwich at a health food store. And I was eating this sandwich. And the flavors were just bursting in my mouth. A flavor that I had never tasted before. And I said, this is good. This is delicious. I was like, whoa. I mean, it was like I was transported to a place that I'd never been before in terms of delicacies and food that I had eaten. And I'm eating this sandwich. And then the daunting realization came over me. There is no way that this sandwich can be tasting like this without certain ingredients. A voice seemed to say, please read the ingredients. Find out the truth. But I said, after I eat the sandwich. (laughs) After I eat the sandwich. You see what's happening here? I had one side of me that said, you need to know what? The truth. Read the ingredients. But then, because I might find an inconvenient truth, I did not want to read. Now, I did read the ingredients, and it was an incredible disappointment. Because what do they say? Ignorance is bliss. This is the human condition. And have you ever had someone tell you, don't tell me. Don't tell me. No, 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 no. Don't tell me. Don't tell me because I want to enjoy just in case the truth conflicts with my carnal desire. And this is the human condition. We do not naturally want to know the truth because if we're honest with ourselves, it conflicts or the chances that it will conflict with our carnal desires. Isn't that it? It's not the lack of availability of truth. It's the hypocrisy of the search. And so when Lazarus was raised from the dead, I mean, this is revelation. This is truth. The Pharisees said, look, let's take care of this. Let's kill the truth. The hypocrisy of the search. The human condition. This is who we are naturally. And that's why we need we need help. We need the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. They perish because they refused to love the truth 
and so be saved. No, this is an interesting terminology or association with truth. Typically, we think of truth in terms of understanding or intellectual ability. We say we understand the truth or we perceive the truth or we're grappling with the truth. But notice that the issue here is not intellectual. It says because they do not what? Love the truth. That is a fascinating association with truth. In other words, the Bible is saying that the issue with truth is not intellectual. It's not an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. And this is interesting because even before epistemology, which is the study of how we know what we know, I mean, epistemology has come all the way back full circle here, and now people are coming to the conclusion that not only do we come to truth and the truth projects onto us, but we come to truth with prejudices and bias and presuppositions, and I will add, desires. And in a sense, we see what we want to see, don't we? That's the way it works. We see what we want to see. And that's why sometimes in conversations, whether it be political, I'm not going there, or theological or whatever, you have a conversation, you see the same thing, and then you're like, am I in an alternate universe? Wow, really? I mean, it's just like this fascinating thing. Same empirical data, as it were. Two totally different conclusions. Because truth not only projects, but we project onto it. Desires, we see what we want to see. And so Jesus makes this profound statement of epistemology in John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. He didn't say he that has an IQ of so and so or such and such or this type of ability, but what Jesus is stating is that I will is more important than IQ. Wow. The desire. We see what we want to see. And Ravi Zacharias puts it this way. Intent is prior to content. And truthfulness in the heart precedes truth in the objective world. Your intentions. That's why when the angel came and prophesied about Jesus, he said that the hearts of many will be revealed. In other words, our reaction to Jesus is a revelation of our hearts. Intent is prior to content. So we need the Holy Spirit because naturally as human beings, we do not desire to know the truth. But it goes a lot more deeper than that because Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, woe to you blind guides. 
Now, the implication of what Jesus is saying here is that not only do we not desire to know the truth, it's as if we close our eyes voluntarily, but Jesus is indicating that this is a lot deeper than that. It's not only that we don't desire to know the truth, but we have a condition of the inability to see. Jesus is pointing out that we have what we call an ontological problem, meaning that we have a problem of being. There is something about our being that has the inability to see. We are blind so that we cannot see truth. Not only do we not desire to see the truth, we can't see the truth because our being is ontologically affected. You're blind. Now, look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, just in case we're too hard on the Pharisees. This is a human problem. This is a human problem. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age have what? Blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, this is a fascinating verse Because what this is essentially saying is that we typically make the statement, I see, then I what? Believe. But what this verse is doing is that it's reversing that common sense order of how we know. We typically say, I see it, then I believe it. But what this is doing is that it's turning it on on its head and saying, I believe, then I believe. See, I mean, fascinating. I believe first, and then I see that. I mean, that is so foreign to the Western mind. So foreign. Now, this is not saying that evidence and reason do not have a role in the Christian experience and that we're just to turn off our brains and I believe, then I will see. That's not what this is saying. But what this is implying is that when you peel it all back, philosophically, theologically, from the aspect of epistemology, you peel it all the way back to the core, the, the ground and the starting point on which you build your experience and faith is precisely that. It's faith. When you peel it all the way back, it is faith that is the starting experience. Now, A.W. Tozer put it beautifully. He says, in the natural matters, or in natural matters of faith, faith follows evidence. Let me read that again. In natural matters, faith follows evidence and is impossible without it. In the realm, but in the realm of the Spirit, faith precedes understanding. It does not follow it. The natural man must know in order to believe. The spiritual man must believe in order to know. The faith that saves is not a conclusion drawn from evidence. It is a moral thing, a thing of the what? Spirit, a supernatural infusion of confidence in Jesus Christ a very gift of God. In other words, before we can have spiritual revelation, we must have spiritual illumination. Because of our ontological state, our state of being, because we are blind and because we don't even have the desire to know the truth, and the capability to understand and perceive truth, 
We need help. And we need the Holy Spirit, as A.W. Tozer says, to bring a supernatural infusion so that we can see. So the starting point of spiritual understanding is being a spirit-filled person. That is what the Bible is bringing out in individuals like Alvin Plantinga, who's on the very forefront of Christian evangelical apologetics, has proven this philosophically. He states that because of the noetic effects of sin, the Holy Spirit must elevate and illuminate our capability to even understand spiritual truth. It's amazing. We need the Holy Spirit. And that is why Jesus said to the disciples, look, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, I saw a riveting documentary of two eye surgeons that are on a mission to end blindness in the developing world. These two physicians are Dr. Ruit and Dr. Tabin, have operated in two dozen countries, including North Korea and Ethiopia, restoring sight to 150,000 people. These are surgeries that they did themselves. The doctors they've trained have given vision to four million others. The surgery costs $25 per eye and only takes five minutes per eye. I mean, it is just astounding. I, mean, I feel like I'm in Bible times because these people are literally just crawling to these clinics out in the middle of the Himalayan mountains. And, and these doctors are there and they are lined up, these individuals that are blind, that have not seen in years because of cataracts. And they perform the surgery. Their eyes are bandaged, and they are there for 24 hours. And it is an emotional just experience just watching them. And as they take those bandages off, and they look at the face of Dr. Ruit and Dr. Tabin, and you see the, the tears running down their faces and the embrace, and they say, thank you, thank you, I can see, I can see. It's amazing when you look at the faces, I mean, the doctors are in this, and I can see why they do hundreds of thousands of these, you know, or tens of thousands of these surgeries, because you see them experiencing vicariously the experience of these individuals being able to see over and over and over again. And this is an eyewitness account of a person that was there witnessing the surgery take place. They stagger and grope their way to him along mountain trails from remote villages, hoping to go under his scalpel and see loved ones again. A day after he operates to remove cataracts, he pulls off the bandages and lo, they can see clearly, at first tentatively, then jubilantly, jubilantly, they gaze about. A few hours later, they walk home radiating an ineffable bliss. Just moving. Individuals that could not see under the hand 
of the trained physician suddenly have been illuminated and they're able to see. Spiritually, we need the great physician. Amen? We need help. We have not only been broken down physically, emotionally, morally by sin, but our perception and our ability to see has been downgraded dramatically. And so the starting point for revelation is to ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination. Look at the experience of Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 through 56. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there are a lot more words in there that indicate sight, but you can see saw, gaze, look. This, this was an important moment in the history of the church because after this, the gospel went to the Gentiles, and you know the story. He is giving this sermon to the religious leaders, and at a certain point, he recognizes that the sermon is not being heeded, and then he cuts to the chase, and they get up stones to stone him, and as they are about to hurl these stones, Stephen stops. And it was this moment that Saul of Tarsus, that later became Paul, he never forgot this moment because Stephen's face was like that of an angel, shining. And notice what the verse says, and being full of the what? Holy Spirit. The prerequisite to what he's able to see afterwards is based on this reality. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed into where? into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, he was transported into revelation, into vision, seeing Jesus because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was the only person in that vicinity that was able to see this because of the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, or in a similar way, because we don't see revelations like this, but if we want to see Jesus through Scripture, we need divine guidance. We need the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 12 and verse 14. These are the things of God that is revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The Holy Spirit is the foundation from which we can examine evidence. 
and reason together. Verse 14, the Spirit or the person without the Spirit does not accept the things of God that comes from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. This is a fascinating take on spiritual knowledge because naturally it is the assumption that we can approach the Bible like we do any other exploration of literature. But the Bible points out that it is a book in which you see what you want to see. You gather what you want to gather. And the spirit in which you bring to the work of understanding Scripture determines the conclusion that you arrive at. And there's no other book like that. I mean, I can't go to someone and say in mathematics, two plus two is something else. All right? But the Bible is, is formatted and through the medium in which conclusions are drawn based on the illumination or the lack of illumination that we bring to the search. John Piper, in his commentary in 1 Corinthians 2, says, If pride has not been crucified by the Holy Spirit, the Bible will be a wax nose, and we will call it foolish or mold it to fit our own natural desires. Moving on. This is in your study guide. The spirit in which you come to the investigation of the scriptures will determine the character of the assistant at your side. Angels from the world of light will be with those who in humility of heart, sorry for the typo, in humility of heart seek for the divine guidance. But if the Bible is opened with reverence, with a feeling of self-sufficiency, if the heart is filled with prejudice, Satan is beside you and he will set the plain statements of God's word in a perverted light. So what this is indicating is that not only do we need the Holy Spirit within us for divine illumination, but actually in the study of Scripture, if we come to it with a certain prejudice, with certain feelings of self-sufficiency, that spirit will determine the invisible agent that is by your side. Did you know Satan can attend Bible studies? Wow, that's pretty remarkable. In other words, if we come to the Bible with prejudice, this indicates that Satan is by our side. As the divine or not divine, the, the assistant that shapes what we are gathering from Scripture. So script, Bible study can be dangerous. I'm not saying don't study your Bible, but this is a reality. There's an unseen reality that we can't see. Without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we shall be continually liable to rest scriptures or to misinterpret them. There is much reading of the Bible that is without profit and in many cases a positive injury. When the Word of God is open without reverence, without prayer, when the thoughts and affections are not fixed upon God or harmony with His will, the mind is clouded with what? 
doubt, and in the very study of the Bible, skepticism strengthens. The enemy takes control of the thoughts, and he suggests interpretations that are not correct. This book is like no other book in the world. We not only need divine illumination, but we need divine guidance in the process of Bible study. The Bible should never be studied without what? Prayer. The Holy Spirit alone can cause us to feel the importance of those things easy to be understood or prevent them from wrestling truths difficult of comprehension. Now, the implication of prayer and the assumption of prayer is humility. It's the posture of, I need help. That is the posture of prayer. Implicit in the act of prayer is humility. Asking, I need help in navigating through Scripture. And so today, it is my prayer that as we engage Scripture, that we come from the starting point from where Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Amen? We not only need the Holy Spirit to refine our character, we not only need the Holy Spirit for the gifts, but we need the Holy Spirit for divine illumination and revelation. How many of you want to say, Lord, please fill me with your sweet spirit? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the Holy Spirit, that you are patient in those times that we are slow to understand, and we hang on to my own theological pet ideas. We thank you for your grace through this process and that through the illuminating influence of the Holy Spirit that we can have revelation that is from heaven. Bless us, we pray, with your presence. Speak to our hearts, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.